Welcome to the Highly Sensitive Parenthood Podcast. I'm Amy Roginus, your podcast host and guide to not only surviving, but thriving as a highly sensitive parent. Together, we'll dive into common challenges of highly sensitive parents, hear from other HSPs and empaths about their experiences in parenthood, and learn to honor and celebrate our sensitivity, not only as parents, but as humans. Welcome. So hello everyone catching the recording and we may have some people join us live as we go. We will see how that goes, but we're here for a special fireside chat. I want to thank Amy. You were kind of the impetus behind that about bringing us together. Um, so Amy, why don't you tell us about yourself and then I can tell people about myself and then we can jump into some of the pre-submitted questions. That sounds great. Yeah. So I'm Amy Laginus. I um, I'm a, a highly sensitive person, HSP, mom of two boys, ages five and nine. Um, and I have a couple of businesses. So one of them, um, one of the hats I wear is a therapist for highly sensitive and empathic people, um, as well as parents um, of all ages, uh, young kids, pregnant people, and parents of older kids. Um, and as part of that, uh, I was working a lot with highly sensitive parents and noticing how that uh, interacted, how those two traits interacted with one another. And so I also have a coaching and course uh, website called Highly Sensitive Parenthood that um, I've developed a couple of resources for parents of highly sensitive children and parents who themselves are highly sensitive. So kind of just supporting people who are empathic, highly sensitive, experiencing the world in different ways. Um, and, and yeah, it's a, it's a real passion of mine personally and professionally. So I'm, I practice out in California. Um, my coaching and HSP parenthood business is worldwide, but, um, for my therapy practice, it's for California residents and that's inner nature therapy. Yeah. Awesome. And for myself, I'm Liz St. Jean, and I have The Mint Ambition. So it's a coaching, leadership, career coaching, lots of different things. Sometimes I say it's a Venn diagram of <laughs> Renee Brown meets LinkedIn meets um, Sheryl Sandberg kind of combination. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of work with quietly ambitious leaders is the phrase I landed on. So we have a lot of people who are highly sensitive or empathetic or otherwise um, sensitive souls that are in my community because my community is filled with people who are, they are ambitious. They, they want, they, they do succeed and they want to succeed, but they're not the kind of person that wants to be really braggy about it or, you know, seeks the spotlight or seeks attention. You know, they want to feel appreciated, but they're not really seeking special recognition, you know, going to the stage in front of a thousand people rather they want to do it kind of more quietly, um, modestly, gracefully fully a lot of the words that I hear from people. Um, mm. The biggest thing for me that I notice with my people is that they, they want to go into leadership for all the right reasons. So they want to do it because they want to make things better for others. Um, they've either had an amazing boss in the past or they've had a really difficult situation, like a very, um, a very painful situation, and they don't want others to have to experience that. So that's why they want to get into, into leadership. So at the same time, because uh, my community is quite sensitive and, and a term that I fell in love with that I heard from a Canadian psychologist years ago, I read his book, um, Brian Little is his name, um, is the term high self-monitor. So mm. people who are very aware of how they impact others. Mm. And so what happens is that the higher self-monitor is, they're very empathetic, right? very high EI, very high emotional intelligence and EQ skills but they're also so attuned to it that it's very easy to start making up stories in our minds about <laughs> what others are thinking. And, and we're so often right that sometimes that you don't, you know, you can be worried, you make up, you make up a false story, but you yeah. also know that you're often right. So mm. that can be a challenge for my community is also trying to be like, well, what if they are thinking about this about me and they, and they might be right, right? You don't want to assume that they're wrong, but we're not always right in the stories we make up in our heads because yeah. our brain is very good at making up stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah I've, I've heard people describe it or ask the question, you know, is this, is this my anxiety speaking or is this my intuition? And, and that is, I mean, there's not necessarily a singular answer to that question. I think it comes with discernment and, and listening and your own experience with that. But yeah, I love how you yeah. describe your community. I think we have, 
we connected because there was some overlap, um, you know, definitely distinct niches, but um, like you, I, I do work with some um, with professionals who ha have maybe come across some challenges working in, in a corporate environment or in these higher powered, higher level uh, jobs where their skills are maybe not quite as visible because of the environment, um, still absolutely invaluable and, and powerful and important, um, but maybe not um, not as flashy as as others might might project out there. So, yeah, I loved hearing more about about that. So that's that is how we connected. And I said, wow, I have had a couple of clients like that, a few clients like that as well, who are for whom that is um, a challenge. I, I, and I love too, I actually haven't heard that um, phrase, the high self-monitoring before, but that is absolutely um, something I see a lot of. And I, I like that it frames it frames it as um, largely positive thing as well, but that we can get into trouble with it when we start letting, letting the voices and the narratives of others crowd out our own intuition or our own needs um, and, prevent us from setting those those boundaries and, and creating the life that we really need so yeah it's very similar to um there's another concept that comes out of actually the political science arena but I think it blends really nice in this conversation and I'd be curious about your thoughts on the overlap with sensitivity as well mm -hmm. and it's the idea of hedgehogs and foxes have you heard of this before no no yeah it's a good one it's I can't remember how like the book is in the 90s I think it's from with Philip yeah. Tetlock if I'm remembering correctly it's been years since I read it but I do the concept always stuck with me and the idea was that you know, he was looking at how people make decisions in the political arena, like political mm -hmm. decisions. And what he found was that you could kind of group them people into hedgehogs and, and foxes. Mm -hmm. He says um, hedgehogs are the kind that they they have a belief mm -hmm. and they basically never change their belief of the world. Like that's mm -hmm. it's like the hedgehog, right? Little quills kind of pointing out. They just don't change it. And like, no matter what information comes at them, they don't change. Like, this is, this is my view. This is what I know. This is what I decide. Mm -hmm. He says, they're very good at making decisions in the sense that they do make them. Like, they'll make them mm -hmm. because they have a certain worldview. Yeah. Foxes, on the other hand, are always looking out for more information. And they always, they're actually always thinking that, well, if I, I need more information to make sure I'm making the right decision. Mm -hmm. And so they're constantly seeking and seeking. <laughs> And he said, like, when they make what once they make a decision, it's a very good one, <laughs> but it takes a long time to make a decision. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I love that concept. That's so interesting. I was I was almost thinking that hedgehogs were going to be sort of the more like protect self-protective and foxes were going to be more vicious, but it's it's a completely different concept. That's so interesting. I do see a lot of the the sensitive clients that I work with behave, I would say more like foxes, at least the ones that I see in, in therapy, the people who are like, who, who are really reflecting and wanting to work on themselves and wanting to work on their relationships, that they are, they're taking in lots of stimuli, lots of information, mm -hmm. lots of perspectives, and it can um, really crowd out the decision-making process. Um, I can think of several people I'm working with right now, honestly, for whom this is a, a challenge um, to distill down what they what is actually best for them because there's so many perspectives, there's so many paths, and um, you know, one of the one of the aspects of being on the sensitive side for, for, for some people anyway, is really um, sort of processing things deeply. And part of that is, is thinking deeply about, okay, well, what matters to me and really living an intentional life having usually translates into like an intentional career for people who are doing that. Um, typically people are not looking to settle for just like, it's okay. It's if it's okay. No, they want something that's values aligned. They want mm -hmm. something meaningful. Growing, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, the, even in the career search process, there can be people who get really stu stuck, or or career redirection, or or movement moving around. Where oh, well, I've heard this from this person, this person said this, and then this this program over here is doing that, and this job, blah blah. blah and there's just there's many pieces of information coming in. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing you've seen that in your work with people as well, and it can be um, really important to to find some ways to, at some points, make choices, like make a choice or to start to, to narrow things down. And also to honor that um, 
that our, our lives, our careers even are a work in progress that that we even if we decide, hey, 10, 10 years down the road, I'm doing something completely different that often if we're staying aligned, what we do ends up sort of stair stepping into the next aspects, the next, the next um, stages of our, our career or our life. Yeah. Yeah. There's another concept that I think about a lot. I share with my clients is like, one thing is I find that we often think of our careers and our lives as though it's like a book, right? Like there's a story. We want to make sure we're living the right story. So that can trip people up, right? Not wanting to make the wrong decision or something I'll regret. And, you know, they see it as like this, this story. And I kind of think, see it as a, do you remember the choose your own adventure story? Yeah. I'm still around. I guess those are my favorite stories. I feel like our lives and careers are a bit more like a choose your own adventure where, you know, you get to the end of a chapter and you make a choice and you go to that one. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you fall off the cliff, then you start at the beginning again. Like you can always restart, like it's a little bit like a video game too, right? You can always restart, try new paths and do different things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I use this image sometimes around, um, you know, going down, it's almost like the Robert Frost poem of two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And I, I think we have, you know, kind of unlimited roads, which can be un- it can be daunting. It can be unnerving to to see that in front of you. But I like this image of the fox that kind of like sniffs, it kind of explores down one path. It takes in some information from this way. Well, how does that feel? How does it feel to, to consider that career path or that position or that responsibility? Ooh, I don't mm, No, that's something's off about that. I'm going to use my senses, my intuition to kind of try this out. Okay. I'm going to go down this. Oh, m- maybe I'm going to make it, a, you know, a right turn and get back to a different trail. So I'm also like an ecotherapist, nature-based person. So I have lots of nature metaphors um, floating around in my head here. But yeah, I love this idea of the the fox and um, and not not having a fixed, you know, open and closed career path. In many ways, it's much more exciting to, for me to think about it as, you know, what's next and I I can choose. and, And even if this thing that I'm really feeling a lot of anxiety about doesn't come through. Oh, there's an invitation to, to, to learn from that, to move to, to something that maybe is a better fit. Um, but it, it can be really hard for people. I think, um, when they're stuck in them in that stressful situation to, to see what it is that you're describing is that there's, there's these paths. It's not a, not just a prescribed book of what's next. How to do it. Yeah. What I hear a lot about, there's a couple of common emotions. I hear people worry about regret and you know, mm-hmm. making the wrong decisions. They worry about regretting. And yeah. sometimes I ask them, and I'd be curious to hear your perspective on this, because it's kind of like, it's a bit of a, um, I don't know if harsh is the right word, but a bit of a like, oh, you know, cold water maybe is a better term question. Okay. But sometimes I'll ask them like, well, you know, I'll say your life life is a series of choices. Like we, we are only at least, you know, until we transcend to become a higher being of some kind, like we just have the one person, this one timeline that we can be. So we can't do everything. We can't be everything. So there will always be some kind of regret. Like there'll always be because we can't do. And then I ask, well, you know, which regret would you rather have? Yeah. Yeah. I I think that cuts right to the heart of it. Right. So it's, it's clarifying. So it is a, it's totally a bucket of cold water, but I think in a helpful way for people where I think when people are paralyzed by indecision, which I see happen a lot with people who are more sensitive or um, have that, you know, internal uh, awareness that's so strong, they get paralyzed in decision-making and, and to be able to, to say, I sometimes say something similar, like either way, there might be a negative outcome, right? Choice A, choice B, someone, you or someone else might have a negative impact from making that choice. And you can focus on, well, what if, you know, what if I, this job goes badly? Okay. But like staying in your current job or career path that is not working, there's a negative to that too. Right. So like not getting just stuck on the one regret of, of making the change, which often feels more intense or overwhelming for people who are a little more quietly sensitive. Um, but, but noticing what's, what's not working right now. Um, and, and that is something I, I do see people get stuck a lot and not wanting to make a change because of the unknown, hmm. um, because of fears of things going, 
going off or making the wrong choice, as you described, um, and, and undervaluing or under-recognizing what's not working or what they're regretting in their current position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and probably this, I'm guessing the same for you. I, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think mm-hmm. like so, some people's fears are, are not even necessarily like emotion. Like there's the emotion-based fears of like, oh my yeah. gosh, what does it work out? And there's all that fear, but sometimes it's an ec- economic fear, right? Like yeah. I'm worried if I start making it, if I make a change and especially if it doesn't work out, I'll lose my livelihood. Like how am I, can I support mm-hmm. my family? Like there is a little bit of that undertone, especially what, and again, whether it's, um, real or not like maybe they're um in a position where it's very unlikely they would actually lose their job but Mm -hmm. still that fear of financial security can be so so real um and so sometimes people like that's the regret they they they, you know asking the question of which regret would you rather have doesn't necessarily mean that everyone lands on oh well obviously I have to go to pursue this career like in some cases people say like you know what I'd rather regret um I, you know, I'd rather be almost be like a little bit wistful about not taking mm-hmm. it, but right now security is most important yeah. right now. Stability is most important. Mm-hmm. And then probably the same for you as well. But then what we do in, with, you know, the coaching, or you can speak better to if it's in the therapy part, um, um, area as well, then you work on like, okay, well, how can we make things better where you are right now? Yeah. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. 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 Boundary setting, self-advocacy, often, you know, recognizing your own strengths too. That's, that's often something that, that people who are highly sensitive or uh, quietly ambitious, as you call it, are maybe not, um, not see they're, they're focusing on the negatives or, or the, where they're falling short rather than really seeing all of the ways in which they are thriving or that they, that all the ways in which they could be thriving if, um, the sort of, uh, the internal monitoring was, just turn down a little bit in their own self-worth and self-care and, and self-respect or honoring it in their work was turned up a little bit more. So just like finding that the rebalancing that helps. Um, I, I know I've personally experienced this in my work as a therapist too, of kind of overextending at my own expense and then realizing like, whoa, 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 like this is out of whack. In order for this career to be sustainable, I need to, to fix it, to, to, lower my caseload or to, to take some more time for myself or whatever it is that needs to be rebalanced in order for, for me to thrive in this, in this job. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're really heading on something. So my, um, uh, one of my main programs I run is a boot camp, a leadership boot camp. It's called mm-hmm. Rise Leadership Boot Camp. And, and it is, it's like about getting promoted without being loud or pushy. Mm-hmm. And the first part of it, a good half, maybe even a little bit more, depending on how you calculate it, is like the introspection about what are your values, what are your strengths, what's the energy that you're bringing to a situation. And what I find it so powerful for people, and like especially people on the more sensitive side, is they just realize like, wow, like the strengths I bring to the table and my values they're they're different than what I've seen promoted in the past. They're different than the the flashy, you know, look at me, look at me kind of style. And they start realizing that they've received messages in the past that they either need to change or that it should be, you know, um, other styles are more promotable. And I find such an impact from people can look within and they can say, oh, these are my strengths. This is who I am. And it may not have been seen and, and kind of come to actually a place of compassion for past managers who just couldn't see it. You know, it's not about being angry, but it's, well, you know, just realizing, oh, they just, they didn't see it. And that's too bad that they missed that. But, you know, I, this, this is me. This is who I am. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love, I love that because it, it incorporates, you know, people's own self-awareness and their own, um, yeah, self, self-honoring. I, I love the word honoring, self-honoring. And it starts to move people towards, um, I would imagine maybe later in the program, there's there's ways that people can, can kind of advocate for themselves or to, to help other people understand what their strengths are or, or where they're contributing that might be less visible than other types of strengths. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. But yeah, the, the internal work absolutely has to, I, I think, come first in order for people to, uh, or at least be concurrent in order for people to start moving their career in, in the direction that uh, feels good for them or to, to find the visibility that, they, that they're that they wanting. 
Yeah, for sure. There's a phrase I ran across. So um, one of the modules is I call it on natural leadership competencies. And we got, we kind of dig into this and it's uh, this phrase goes, it says as within, so without. Mm. And I've, I've done, a, I need to keep yeah. doing more research because I have not been able to verify the origin of that. It's been okay. attributed to lots of different authors. I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But it's the idea that you know, what you create within yourself, that's what manifests outside. So it's getting a little bit into the woo concept, but in leadership, I feel, and, um, and probably the same with parenting, I would imagine too, right? Like, um, you know, how we feel within ourselves that manifests outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then I think, especially, especially for the more sensitive or high self monitors, I was like to say too, it's like, it's so important to have them to like go within first, that strength from within first before without, because otherwise it flips and it becomes so without as within. And we're letting the outside yes. dictate who we are inside. Oh my gosh. Yes. So, so true. It's, it's interesting. Thank you for bringing up the parallel with, with parenting and, um, and I, I've, I've seen, I've seen that with the career and the, and the, um, you know, work life, but I, I, it's so true with, with parenthood as well. And, um, in fact, one of the, one of my main courses, um, highly sensitive parenthood course is structured in a very similar way to yours. It sounds like we're the first, most of the courses is through the lens of how are, how are you? Like, it's actually not really about parenting. It's more about you, oh, that's you. so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's about the parent themselves and, and, and not, and beyond the role of being a parent as well, but it looks at your own values, your own self-care, your own identity. That's not part of parent parenthood necessarily, because in order to be a healthy, thriving parent, you need to tend to yourself first. And it's, and it's really, unfortunately, in many ways, countercultural. And I've run into a lot of clients for whom um, doing that feels selfish. I hear that a lot. It's selfish to take care of myself. Um, If I don't want to be around my child um, all the time, then like that's, I'm a bad parent for doing that. I'm a horrible person. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I shouldn't have had kids. Like I wanted kids and now like I'm overwhelmed by them. Like that's messed up. Or I find my child overstimulating and um, I feel so guilty about it. And in many ways that there's parallels with work where like, sometimes it's just about, it's about balance and it's about, um, recognizing, I mean, I hit it over the head in the course really about recognizing your strengths. So it's a similar framework almost where, where maybe people are coming to, to, to us in our respective niches saying like, ow, like (laughs) this is painful for me. I'm not Mm -hmm. seen, or I'm like massively overwhelmed. Um, Mm -hmm. this, something feels off. And to be able to start from a place of saying, uh, validating that and saying like, yeah, that is, that is happening because this, maybe the systems that are in place are not always very friendly to people who are that high self-monitoring, the HSP. Um, I know for, you know, in, in family life, um, I'm in the United States and, and in California and, you know, like there's, there's a lot of pressures and families are spread out a lot of the time and people don't have the, the support they need, they really deserve as, as parents. And so, um, so they, they find themselves completely stretched thin and overwhelmed and feeling like there's something wrong with them. Whereas really a lot of it's systemic that like, you know, our, our culture is not really set up to support parents very well, or especially working parents um, who are working outside the home and especially highly sensitive or, or quietly ambitious people, you know, like there's, there's some systemic aspects to, um, to what's going on that I think are important for people to understand alongside their own um, awareness of, of how the same traits and the same parts of themselves that are leading to some of this pain and, and challenge are also huge gifts and strengths that should be celebrated and leveraged. And so starting from a place of reevaluating and kind of um, rewriting the narrative around who who they are, who you are as a, as a parent or as a professional and, and really validating your, having your own strengths validated and, and supported that that creates such a springboard for people to make the changes that they need to make, whether in parenting or, or work. Yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes doing the both right now that yes. I have. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I, and, and I guess we're coming towards like where we meet in the middle here is that 
you mentioned that some of your work is with parents and some of my work, Mm -hmm. um, even though I'm primarily with parents, a lot of the times it does go into work and work-life balance and being a a professional who is sensitive or empathic. Um, So yeah, I know we had Mm -hmm. some questions that people had submitted. I'm curious to hear what people are wanting to know. Yeah, we did. I was just thinking that too. Okay, so here we've got the case. So this is a great one. So this is touching more on on the parenting side. So my challenge of being a parent at HSP is the overstimulation of sound and touch for my little one. She wants to touch me and be held a lot more than I want to. And it can be hard not to react when she reaches for me while I'm trying to do something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I feel that one. I've, I've been there personally. Um, honestly, that exact thing was probably the hardest, the single hardest thing about parenting for me, the exact the, the physical touch and overstimulation from uh, my my kid, my, my children. Um, I, I think there's a, a couple things that I want to say about that. One is that that changes tends to change over time. I don't know how old this person's child is, but I know during the infancy and toddler stage, it was really intense, almost more intense during the toddler stage because infants are, you know, they're like, they're there, but they're kind of, they're just laying there, right? <laughs> they're not toddlers, doing much. A yeah. Lot of, yeah. There's a lot of this like percussive, uh, like this or like tugging and yeah. um, kind of like not non-consensual in some ways, like mm of your body, which can feel really bad. It can just feel really bad. Um, and then with a lot of parents and in myself included, one of the biggest challenges there was, um, guilt over, well, I don't want to be irritable. I don't want to tell my child to get off or to stop touching me. So there, there can be this barrier there. And, um, I do think that, that, when they're in that toddler stage, there are some ways. So I'm, I'm kind of making an assumption based on how mm-hmm. this person described it, that, that maybe they have a toddler or preschooler. Um, there are some ways to mm, positively state your needs for, for, for physical space. Um, and, and some of that is about delaying. So for example, saying, you know what, m- mommy just needs uh, my own space right now. Let's, plan on cuddling in just a few minutes and you could set a timer. You can say like, here's our cuddle corner or, or even setting some boundaries. And this is, think of it as actually teaching them to advocate for their own personal space too, and their own preferences. You're modeling that for them, right? So let's say you're at the stove. That's one of the ones that always got me extra Mm. overwhelmed is like I have open flame or, you know, (laughs) and they're coming up and they're, they're needing attention and just naming, hi, honey, like, I, oh, I know, I want to, I want to cuddle you too. Or like, I, I know you want to read or you, you need something from me. Give me just a moment if I can, if I just need a moment or, um, you know, why don't you go wait over here? And then I'll, I'll when I'm done with this thing, I'll, I'll come um, cuddle with you. So kind of setting, starting to set some parameters, even in terms of how you're talking about it mm-hmm. um, can be really important. Um, I, I do think one of the, my biggest um simple recommendations is just wearing earplugs. If you have those, you can still totally hear your kid, you know, if you can't, then don't wear them, but usually you can, it's just the volumes turned down a little Mm -hmm. bit and that can really, really help, um, with the sensory overstimulation. I'm trying to think if I have any other Mm. quick tips on that, but it is really hard. And, and I, my kids are older now and that aspect of parenting has gotten a lot more manageable and and less Mm -hmm. intense for me over the years. Um, uh, (laughs) I, 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 a lot of HSP parents that I've talked to have, you know, take long bathroom breaks, go sit in their closet, go on walks. Um, so just finding these like micro breaks where nobody is touching you, Mm-hmm. And and doing your best to do those with as minimal guilt as possible, knowing that you are actually going to show up and be a quote better parent, <laughs> whatever that looks like for you, for having taken that time to um to to kind of regulate your nervous system by by having your space uh, protected for a little bit. 
Yeah. And do you want to speak a bit too about the um, kind of pre-putting words in your mouth, but thinking about the, the self-compassion, like if someone does kind of, because they are he, I'm not, um, they talk about reacting and like, oh, I'm trying not to react, but you know, we're all human and we might have reactions and we might not feel good about them. Mm-hmm. I feel like self-compassion can be so important in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. I think Absolutely. Self, self-compassion, knowing that, you know, a couple of, of ways to frame that, but I, I think can be helpful or have been helpful for, for me and my clients around self-compassion in this particular example. One of which is um, just because your child is, is creating overstimulation for you says absolutely nothing about how much you love or care for your child. And I think a lot of people conflate that and they, they think that, that they, like I said, are, are a bad parent or that they are not cut out to be a parent or that they are somehow deficient because their child is a source of overstimulation. Um, it's kind of the same. Think about it as like if, when you hear like really loud. Uh, I used to have a dishwasher that made like the worst noise in the world. I was like, rah, rah, rah. eventually I replaced it and got a different model. But it wasn't that my dishwasher was bad or that I like was taking bad care of it or that like I, I had any sort of feelings. It just the noise created it, it caused a physical sensation in my body and an and emotional reaction sometimes too. Um when I became aware of that and and kind of disconnected, it's a it's a little weird to compare a child to a dishwasher. I understand that, but like when you can disconnect that that that, that they are overstimulating from the fact that they are your child a little bit, mm. it can help reduce some of that guilt that you are allowed to be overstimulated mm. by your child. Like that's, it's, that's just a reality. Kids are, they're noisy, they're sticky, they pull on you, right? Like <laughs> you can fully love your kid and, and really dislike the noise that they make, the, the, the tugging, mm-hmm. the, uh, the textures, that so I, so I think it's important for people to to start to consider how they can separate out loving their child and not liking some things about just like the sensations that a child uh, uh, can create. <laughs> um, so there's a little bit of a distinction there. And then the other thing, the other idea here that I want to share is just going back to this idea of um, many of us are lacking that village. And, and don't realize that parents really, our nervous systems are not cut out to be with children. I believe anyway, mine isn't. Our nervous systems aren't cut out to be with kids 24 seven. And a lot of us think that they are like that, that like a good parent, or at least that's this narrative that's buried deep for a lot of people that I work with is good parents like want to be with their kids all the time and want to be like really active and playful and like interactive with their kids all the time. And if we think about much of human history, we lived largely in, you know, villages and communities where our childcare was shared across many different people. And we weren't with our kids all the time. We had siblings taking care of younger siblings. We had cousins, we had aunts, we had grandparents who were there and we weren't with our kids anywhere close to 24 Mm seven. And so just recognizing that, as I said earlier, there's some systemic factors that really kind of are um, making our lives quite a bit harder as modern day parents, many of us. I think that can help to build some self-compassion too. Just, just that mm-hmm. perspective shift that like, I'm not suddenly deficient. I'm not deficient because I don't want to be with my kid all the time. I'm not, there's not something that's wrong with me because I find my child to be overstimulating. Um, you know, it's okay that I feel this way. And, and really to know that once you start accepting that, I mean, I've seen this over and over in my own experience and with clients that, and you start to recognize, hey, I actually really need this amount of quiet time, or I really need to go outside and take a walk and, and realizing how much better you feel and how much more you can show up to be the parent that you want to be. It starts to become easier to be self-compassionate and to make self-compassionate choices to, um, to you know, as a parent, as a, as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So they had a, a follow-on 
question that sort of links, but links over into the work side of the world mm -hmm. and looking for how to gear into or gear, get into work mode quicker. It takes time for me to unwind from mama mode into work mode. So tools for transitions throughout the day. Hmm. So I have kind of a quick tip that that I have found really useful and I've shared with others before that people have found useful as well. I wanted to share with people. Yeah. And it is, um, it involves a grid. <laughs> so if you think of like grid paper, I used to do this like just on, on Word. I would kind of create a table and print. I would, and I would print it off so I could hand write it. There's a lot of, there's really interesting research about the connection between like mind body connection. When you get off your computer and onto like physical mm -hmm. paper using your hand, you're kind of, you're connecting your mind and your body together in that moment. It's kind of like, again, it's a little bit more on the woo side and I'm a trained economist. So I, I'm bringing up all these woo things full well, having been trained as like science, social science, anyways, economics. Oh yeah. The, yeah. Look, I, I hear you. I love that. I love, I, I'm a, an ecotherapist and it has the same sort of vibes where people are like, oh, like tree hugging and stuff. And I'm like, oh, but the research, you just have to look, read all the, yes, the research is so fascinating. Um, yeah, the, the, the terpenes in the air, the, the, how those impact our nervous systems and how, yeah, how, how there's studies about how, you know, green space it increases our ability to concentrate and focus and retain information. Anyway, so like I'm right there with you on things that sound new on the surface, yes. in fact, are very much based in scientific research. So, yes, anyway, go on. yes, we can, we can completely have a different conversation. We nerd out about the research and yeah. Um, so, so I do recommend it like as a table and what you do is you, you come up with a set of really simple tasks or things to do that basically start your day. And I mean, like really simple and what you, you're essentially doing is coming up with a set um, routine, but you, it's almost like this like morning ritual that you do and like First thing would be turn on the computer. Mm. Literally that simple, right? And actually the turn on the computer one is something <laughs> I don't even think it was until I was preparing for this that I really thought about. It means you turned off your computer the night before. You didn't just put into sleep mode. You actually turned off your yeah. computer at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So that, which is important for the end of the day, but also in the morning, the reason you want to turn it on instead of just wake it up is that that is part of the ritual, that, that bit of time it takes oh, to start God. up. Then you might do like position, you know, if it like position your chair, like let's say if you're at a sit stand desk, position wow. your computer. Um, oh, what are some of the like, things like that? It's, it's not check email. Check email does not belong in this <laughs> list at all. You are not allowed to check your email until you've gone through the list. Um, um, it might be make coffee that might be part mm -hmm. of the ritual once once you're like this is my get into work mode ritual yeah. to be yeah. make a coffee um and what I really recommend for a couple of reasons but it actually kind of leads into productivity side of things is you set your big three what mm -hmm. are your big three your top three things that you're going to get done that day mm -hmm. and you and again you're doing this before you check email because oh, you want them to be your priorities, not someone else's. I love that. Yeah. And so you, so you come up with four or five or six and just having it alone is enough, but I like the grid and the check and the checks or check boxes. Like, so you, how you do the grid is you, you have um, enough space on the first column, like the left column where you can write out your, your mm -hmm. things you're doing that. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the grid are basically spaces for check boxes. So they can be much narrower um, columns and, and rows. Mm -hmm. And every day you check it as you do it. Mm -hmm. And especially when you can in your, it's almost like in your mind, you're like, I am starting, I am going into work mode. Mm -hmm. I'm going, and it's kind of, there's a bit of a rhythmic nature yeah. to it. There's no thinking involved. You're just, you're, and you, you just, you, you, you use it. You don't just do it. Mm -hmm. You use it to mm -hmm. get into work mode, if that makes sense. So it's not yeah. just the, it's not just the act of it, but you're using it intentionally. Like you're mm -hmm. being mindful about, mm -hmm. I am now getting into work mode. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. you've got your big three as your last thing. You set your big three and whatever system you have for that. Like I would always have a journal with, and just like, I had to have a journal literally like every day I'd have a big three, big three, big three. Mm -hmm. And that was my set of, of three things I would get done that day. Wow. That's, I, I've never heard of that system before, but are they the grids, but I think that's really powerful. And, and I love that you brought up this idea of the routine. And I think that tends to serve 
you know, the people we work with really well is to kind of have this um, prescribed, but but very intentional and and thoughtful and and aligned routine that helps to not only to kind of help to organize this, but to signal to our brains and bodies, hello, now you are transitioning to this role and this rhythm of your day. And, um, you know, it's really, I was thinking as you're describing turning off the computer versus putting it to sleep. And it reminds me of during the pandemic, um, when, when at least down here in San Diego, we were all like, we were, everyone's working from home, like off people's offices were like in their bedrooms because space is tight. And it was, it was a madhouse, you know, people had, it caused poor work-life boundaries for everybody, but especially when there's space challenges and kids and that kind of thing. Um, you know, when I would, I'm in my home office right now. And when I would, I can actually hear my kids out there right now, but during when we we're all together all day, it really was like, there was no buffer time and that yeah. that buffer in between activities is actually pretty well documented that people who are more sensitive um need like absolutely need for our cognitive health that buffer time um mm -hmm. and 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 so i would i would advise people to do exact, that exact thing close your computer and if it's a room that is a multi-purpose room put it away put it in its case mm -hmm put it in a closet and close the closet door. Or if it's in, a, in an office, close your office door, um, you know, put your desk away. If you have a desk that can fold up, whatever it is that you can do, clear your desk off. So kind of create this physical, there's almost like a physical aspect of also the wind down. That's often what I have focused on more with people. So I like that you took, you took kind of like the getting into work mode, but I've, I've talked with a lot of people about, well, how do you transition from you know, this, like being on with, with clients or coworkers or doing your work tasks. And then all of a sudden your kids get home and, or you have to run, pick them up. And it's, what about dinner? Okay. Homework and cleaning out the backpack of bubble. There's all these different things that are going on or that you need to attend to with younger children as well. Um, and I think it's so important to have that buffer time. If you can, as long as, as long as you can reasonably take it's is great for many people it feels like they can't take more than like five or so minutes but even taking that to like you said put away put turn things off put them away if you can um another couple of little tips i have is like listening to a favorite song um taking a, a brief walk if you can that can really help reset um watching a quick like funny video to kind of like create a little separation between kind of your fixation or your thoughts about whatever was going on in the work day and kind of signal that there's a transition. Um, so I, I think, I think having that time and a lot of us who are working from, from home or working remotely at this point, we've almost lost out. I actually read an article about this recently about how losing commutes has some negative impacts as well mm -hmm. that we don't have that that peri period of time especially working parents don't have that period of time to um where they're like kind of in this like neither here nor their mm -hmm. responsibility they're just kind of they can listen to a podcast they can have mm -hmm. silence um and I've noticed at times when I had longer commutes I've actually had a lot easier time with the transition versus like a really short commute between my work and a kid's daycare or something like that. So just something to think yeah. about. Yeah, that makes actually the thing about the commute and like the difference between the transition, the imagery that comes to my mind is like a sponge. It's mm -hmm. like, we're so squeezed all the time and you need those, you need the, the periods and give yourself that space for the sponge to come back out, recognizing like, you know, we're going to have that squeeze. Like that's a part of, that's kind of a part of life, right. Depending on what we're doing for most people, there's, there is that stress. Like there's, a, and again, with the research, there's a lot of research that, you know, stress quote, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's the too much stress and no recovery from stress and, and, or, and going well beyond what we can handle, but stress just, you know, like the right amount of stress keeps us sharp, keeps us on our game. We get, we can do things we also need to recover and like that's that spot when that sponge has a chance to kind of come back out um, mm. and expand again. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that, that metaphor, that symbolism. And I think in, in general, people who are, you know, really aware, have this high EQ, like you talked about earlier, our sponges tend to get squeezed more by what's going on around us. <laughs> right. So, um, so at least in, in, in my field, there's, um, uh, you know, as a therapist, there's actually some groups and some people who work with highly sensitive therapists. And many of us, we just have learned through experience, often hard-earned wisdom that our caseloads just have to be smaller and we can't see, you know, five people back to back and then another few people in the after, like we, we just can't, we don't function. We can't, we can't function doing that. And so it looks different for different people, but you know, spreading out meetings or, or trying to do a, a four day work week or whatever, it looks different, but it's, it's really noticing like, oh, people who are in this field who are not as sensitive or not as um, tapped into EQ, you know, they can see more people and it's kind of slow squeezing of the sponge. But for us, it's like, whoa, like it's a little bit warp speed. And then we need to really account for that, that buffer time, that recovery time. Um, it's, yeah, it's critical. It's absolutely critical. And it, it's not, it's not a luxury, but it can feel mm. like it in a culture that kind of views it as a luxury, kind of, kind of views it as a, a privilege in many ways, um, to have, yeah. to have the time or to have the flexibility, flexibility to recover. Yeah. Well, and especially where we have so many stories and narratives about people rising to the occasion and perseverance. And like we we really glorify that, that hard work and overcoming that I think it can be so easy for people to feel like, well, I should be able to handle this. Like why, you know, it, it, you know, I don't, and maybe you don't even see your colleague needing it as much. So you can get into that, that comparison game a bit yes. as well, which can be tough. Yes. Um, you said something there that actually segues really nicely. And I know we're running kind of close to time here, but I've got, this is a, a great question I thought for a lot of people because they said, how fellow HSPs manage the overwhelm with work and then in brackets, leading a team and home demands in brackets, raising two toddlers. Oh, we had, uh, yes, we had another question too of someone who had three young ones. So yeah, especially having multiples. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, very, that's a, it's a very real challenge, both mm-hmm. being more sensitive, whether high self-monitor HSP in this mm-hmm. case, in the workplace, leading a team, and then also balancing at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll stay on the work piece and I'll let you uh, mm-hmm. chime in on the home piece. On the work piece with the overwhelm. So there's a, a little bit of, um, you know, if this person was here, I'd probably ask some more questions, but what was leading to the overwhelm, we probably like tease out a bit, do a little bit of coaching, but um, so my answer is be a little bit more generic in this case. A couple of things that come to mind. One is um, what I've noticed for a lot of people, and this is especially for sensitive souls, is that we can take on a lot of other people's challenges and difficulties. Like we feel it ourselves. So part of it's figuring out for yourself, like, okay, how can I be there for my team. And especially over the last few years, it's been, it's hard. It's been really hard to, to lead and be a, be a strong manager in, in, over the pandemic. Um, but so how can I support them and be supportive while still protecting my own energy or, or how can I, what are some ways that work for me to, it's like a sponge piece to kind of come back from it. So figuring out what works for you, and especially if you can find ways that you know work for you fairly kind of quickly, like, you know, if you if you are so lucky to have trees nearby or a park, because I'm with you on that, Amy, mm-hmm. like if you can get just get out for a, a walk and, you know, you've just had a really difficult conversation with an employee and, you know, you need to take like take that time. That is so critical. Mm-hmm. So you can, that sponge can can go back out. Or as I have one client pull it her empathy bucket, she said, my empathy mm-hmm. bucket is empty. It's like... Mm-hmm. So we need to figure out, okay, how can we refill it, but also making sure, okay, like, are there, are there holes there that you can, that we need to patch up? So that's that protective piece. So there's that. Um, the other piece I find for a lot of people is that um, between both sensitivity, but also this is just very natural in the workplace is that um, we often want to solve problems for other people. So we don't just take on their problems energetically, but we actually try, we actually think that our role is to solve because of well, I'm the manager, I'm supposed to know, or that's what you've always seen. You've always been told by your boss what to do. 
So I highly recommend getting some coaching skills in there, like coaching for managers. There's a great book called The Coaching Habit. Very great, very simple um, approach to coaching or um, the the one minute, uh, the new one minute managers, another great book with some coaching. And basically you get this, you have a, you, you develop the skill to help your employees solve their own problems. And it happens, it, it takes a little while to develop the skill and to get your employees used to it. But once you get it down, you don't have to take on their problems because mm-hmm. they're solving their own problems. Mm. Okay. So you really, that's like one of the most critical skills, not just for like, in this case, it helps you with the overwhelm. So you're not taking on the problems, but it also makes you a much better manager, a much better leader because you are then supporting people. And yeah, you're still a manager. You're still a supervisor. Like if they're coming up with solutions that you, that they can't do for whatever reason, like, you know, for whatever reason, can't do it, then you can step in, you can put on your supervisor hat on again, or your manager hat and, and work on, um, teaching them, but that's a teaching role versus a coaching role. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And then the other piece is, is, and this can be hard. I completely acknowledge, especially for our HSP or sensitive folks is, is, um, is advocating for your team, seeing what, you know, are, is your team or are you taking on too much? Do you yeah. need to go to your senior leaders, your senior management and have some honest conversations, some really candid conversations. You can go to them you just see what your role is, like what they're going to expect from you is that you will sit down and look at the work. Like I'm looking down at my desk. Is it like, you're going to look at your actual work, look at your, um, you know, the support you have from both your team as well as outside your team and just have a realistic sense of what can be done and then prioritize like in your mind, like here are the priorities and here are the things that we don't, we can't do right now. And then you go to your senior leaders and you say, okay, here's the reality. Like until we have more support, here's what we can do. We can't, we can't deliver on these other things. Yeah. And they, in some cases, they'll disagree with you, flat out agree. And mm-hmm. now, a lot of other times you're going to find out, no, 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 that they want, they're going to ask you, they're going to tell you what their priorities are a little bit different. And you're going to reprioritize mm-hmm. some of those. But that's a really, really important skill. And I completely acknowledge it. it's a hard one. Like it's a tougher one and it might be depleting as well, but mm-hmm. really, really critical skill. Mm-hmm. Oh, those are all so, such valuable um, tips. I, I love all of those. And I, I do think that that self-advocacy piece or that prioritizing or recognizing, oh, I can't do it all. And, and I might not deliver on something that somebody wants me to deliver on that. That is, that can be really sticky for, for some of us. Um, but, but I wanted to go back to that and kind of draw a line between work and, and parenthood with the second point you made around being a manager and really making sure you're, if that is your role, in fact, that you are focusing on whatever that, whatever that role is. And maybe, maybe you're not a manager, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a therapist, and maybe you have um, a specific role. The, the, the important thing is you have a specific role, right? But let's use this idea of a manager. And, and you bring up a great point that a manager, the manager's job is to manage. They're executing on something, sure, but they're not, um, they're not taking care of like the lower level tasks, right? They're not always executing on these, these, all these small little discrete tasks. Um, and one thing that can happen, uh, in, in, for, for parents and especially for mothers is that they end up not always, but, but a lot of the time they end up taking on the managerial tasks of, of parenting, which are increasingly complex in today's world, right? We have, yeah, volunteering, we have kids sports, we have extracurriculars, we have homework, we have, you know, uh, expectations that will um, support our kids with with therapies or other types of um, things that they might need. So really, there's a there's a complex, uh, even just managing the family thinking about meal planning, switching out kids clothes seasonally, all these different things, right? So there's, there's all the logistical planning, and then there's actually executing on those tasks. And, and often, uh, I mostly work with women. Often the, the women who are working professionally are unfortunately still taking on the bulk of both the managerial and the execution of the tasks. Even if, even if their partner is really willing and they're saying, oh, no, we want to split things 50-50, they still are not accounting for the kind of the managerial work that takes place around um, 
you know, keeping the household running. And, and um, I, I think it's important to, to consider, to, to really value that as, as a role that, that, that um, sort of executive functioning and the, the household manager role is real and legitimate, even if it's not as visible to other people. Um, and that said, that especially for people who are working even part-time outside of the house and even people who are full-time at home, honestly, but um, especially for people who are working full-time outside the home and expecting themselves to not delegate any tasks of household uh, to other people is, I would say for like the vast majority of people, it's setting yourself up for massive overwhelm and sense of failure because there simply are not enough hours in the day to, in my opinion, <laughs> to work full-time outside of the home, to successfully run a, a household to the level that most sensitive people want to run it at, right? We hold ourselves to a high standard as parents, as creators of a peaceful environment at home. We want, we want, and, and honestly, we need, our nervous systems need for things to be relatively peaceful on the home front a lot of the time. We really benefit from that. And so, um, I have a lot of the clients that I've worked with, and again, me personally, have had to make some decisions around, okay, how do I use my resources? If I'm working outside of the home and contributing in that way, can I reallocate some of that to support me and my family and how things are run at home? And that can look all sorts of different ways. It can look like um, choosing to do like meal delivery services or um, meal kits. I've done that on and off during really busy periods. Um, having help people come help clean your house um, for newer parents, having like laundry service. And a lot of people really struggle with the idea that this is um, that these things are a privilege. And to some extent, I agree with it. And they say, well, I, I feel bad. Other parents are not don't have that luxury. They don't have that privilege. And there's a yes. And and that for me, it's like that is true. But it does not mean that you you just you you should just suffer and, and bear it because it it's also not fair. Nobody should have to hold a full-time job and manage a household and execute all of the, the tasks associated with household and parenting. Um, so you know, finding ways on the work front to reduce the intensity when that's appropriate and accept and 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 accessible. And then also finding ways to reduce the workload on the home front. Um, if you're partnered, uh, having conversations with a partner um, is often a really important part of that. That can take some time to, to recalibrate and to adjust. Um, when I've worked with people on that, sometimes couples therapy is helpful with that. Um, but often we, you know, we just need a lot more support than we think we do. At least that's been my experience. And, and when we start adding in some buffer time, we start adding in some support when we start saying, okay, I'm going to sacrifice a little bit on how healthy our meals are or how cheap my meals are in order to have some more downtime. That's just an example. Um, we realize actually that is, that is how I want to allocate my resources of time, energy, um, money right now. And, and it can shift over time, but really just being honest with yourself about how to use your resources, all of those resources wisely um, in order to create as balanced and as stre low stress of a life as you can during during the time when, when you're parenting, especially young children and working outside the home. Yeah. Well, well and that is bringing us to the end, but that was wonderful, Amy. Those were, there's so much in there and I hope everyone mm -hmm. who's been watching has really enjoyed this and taking away lots of nuggets for mm -hmm. both on the work side as well as on the, the home side and, and especially realizing like how much we see you. We know that doing, yes. just like Amy was saying, like doing all of it is, you know, have all these expectations and sometimes just having a little bit of grace and realizing that, you know, things, it it, it is hard and we see you and, it, and it's okay to um, ask for help and to seek out the seek out help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in many cases, it's it's critical for people to seek out help. Um, and, and yeah, I just have seen it over and over. People be resistant, and then once they do it, or they make these shifts. They're like, oh, 
Why didn't I do that earlier? This is, <laughs> I, I needed this. Like I needed yeah. this to be okay. And so, yeah, if you're on the fence about it, I, I would say, you know, start small, um, whatever that looks like for you. Maybe it's hiring a babysitter to come a couple hours a week and taking care of your own needs during that time. Maybe it is uh, having, I, one of my sisters does like a pizza Friday and they just order pizza on Friday. So no one has to think about mm. creating, making dinner at home or you know, having a big cleanup. So it could be little things like that, just little adjustments and see how does that, what's the final equation of that? Like, does that, is that more beneficial, even though that maybe there's some trade-offs in there and just noticing, just being, being honest with yourself and honoring what you're needing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for this fireside chat, this casual conversation. Yes. It's been a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. I have. Thank you for inviting me. And um, yeah, people want to connect with me. I am um, on Instagram at highly sensitive parenthood and at inner nature therapy. And those are the URLs of both my websites too, highly sensitive parenthood.com and innernaturetherapy.com. And I'd love to uh, connect with anyone who is interested to hear more and looking for more support. Um, you can, you can reach out to me via either of those websites um, or at Amy, A-M-Y at highly sensitive parenthood.com. Awesome. And for me, I'm at The Mint Ambition, uh, both on Instagram and same as my website, or you can also come find me on LinkedIn if you like. I like to share things around career on there as well. Um, yeah, we would both love to connect with you and, and hear from you as well, what your thoughts were and what nuggets you took away. So thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Highly Sensitive Parenthood podcast. For more resources, including our blog, toolkit, and online course for highly sensitive parents, visit highlysensitiveparenthood.com.